Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Peter Holton Moolman is CEO and founder of Trustpilot. Founded in 2007, over the last 14 years, he has led Trustpilot from a small Danish startup to a global FTSE 250 listed company. In 2013, Peter was named Danish Entrepreneur of the Year by Ernst Young. So what's the story behind the story? Without further ado, let's get into it. Peter, hi. Welcome to the Astrology Podcast. Great to have you as my guest here today. And I'm really excited and fascinated to get into all things, not least Trustpilot, but also you and your life. But as is customary with astrology, I like to start with those uh, those early days. So uh, inevitably, my first question turns to childhood. What was it like for you? Where did you grow up? Let's start with a bit of context. How were those early days for you? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Lee. So I grew up in Danish suburbia. So I'm I'm Danish. I'm born in Denmark in a city with thirty thousand people. My dad is a doctor. Uh, my mom is a nurse. When I was eight years old, we moved to uh, an even smaller city where I think in my class we were eleven people. Only went to the seventh grade, and then then you had to move to another school. I have two younger sisters. We had a dog when I was growing up. Uh, so in some sense, it was really very classic countryside, middle class, uh, very safe and very Danish, I guess. <laughs> and and what were your interests as a child? What sort of things were you into? Lego was 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 the dominating interest for a very long time. What was it about Lego that was the appeal? Uh, I think uh, I just really like to play with Lego. That I, I like to construct. I'd like just to sit and uh, with my friends, and we would build all these different things, uh, and and then tear them apart and build new things. And and I quite liked that. Then as I as I got a little older, I liked playing computer games. Uh, I was into. All these uh, quite nerdy interests uh, that I really liked, uh, role-playing games, magic cards, uh, anything where it was about uh, figuring out a system and using creativity within that system, I think I thought was interesting. And what about the the heroes, if you like, the, the, if there were those posters on the wall, metaphorically or otherwise, who were the, the figures that you looked up to? I never really had any big idols in my youth. I always quite liked, in particular, I liked my grandfather. He was a, a, a bit of an, an idol. He had sailed the oceans for 30 or 40 years. So uh, he was in China during Mao's uh, great step forward. Uh, he was in, in an island in Indonesia in the 60s. He was at an opium bar in Hong Kong in the 60s and had lived that very interesting life. I had a great big family uh, that uh, I'm, I'm still very close with today. And, and so I think he in particular stands out. But, but, but many people within the family, was, was, it was more those with more the role models than, than certain say, pop stars or, or movie stars or, or, or business people for that matter. 
What do you think? That's interesting because I, I, I ought not to make any kind of assumption, but much of what you described, there's this sense of creativity, of building things if you go back to the Lego, but creativity through, imagine, the, the, the role-playing games are a, and this kind of sense of adventure, which I guess is inspired by, in some way, by your your grandfather. Is, is that a fair, that sort of instill in you a sense of, of wonder as to the big wide world that's out there? Yeah, in some, th- in, in some sense, I have both uh, inside me. I'm rather cautious in some sense. In some sense, I, I'm very open for impressions. In some sense, growing up, the world was dangerous, but also very safe in a weird way. I think I, think I was a rather sensitive child, and as such, I, I thought the world was big and scary, but at the same time, I, I recognized objectively I was in a very safe place. And I and I think I've taken that with me. That in some sense I'm I'm this cautious guy that somehow starts a business. On the one hand, I think of myself as not taking chances and not being reckless and 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 being pretty meticulous in my thinking. And at the same time, doing things that other people would consider as high risk, but 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 that I have somehow thought through and 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 measured on the objectives that that I care about is, is in fact low risk. Let's go back to those. That's, you, you've given me an interesting thread there, but I've, I'm interested to just pick that apart a little bit further. Academically as a child, wh- where were your leanings? Were you, were you naturally into mathematics, into sciences, into the creative? What, what sort of, what subjects were, were inspiring for you at school? I, I was just all around extremely strong academically. I was good at languages, I was good at math, I was good at really everything in school, to the extent where I even persuaded my math teacher that I didn't have to come to class uh, for a full year. If I could just pass certain tests uh, through the year, he was perfectly fine with me just studying on my own. And at some point also, I even tried to apply for uh, various math competitions. So yeah, so, so, so academically, I, I, was, I was quite good. And that lasted all the way through uh, high school. And I thought that it would be the same during the, um, the time at university. And then at some point, I just started to see it all as that I, I had, in fact, had it all wrong uh, because I had looked at it more as a – like initially, it, I, I started because I thought it was interesting. Then I turned it into this optimization game where it was about the grades. And then I got stuck in that and I realized that, and I got enormously demotivated from that mindset uh, to the extent where it actually drove me out of school and into entrepreneurship. Interesting. We go back to that. At what age were you where you persuaded your teacher that you didn't need to, to attend class in maths? I was 16. So that's, that strikes me as to your point about being cautious, I think was the phrase that you, naturally cautious, a phrase that you might have used earlier. But that there will be some people might consider that, for example, the risk, if you like, associated with starting your own business. For a lot of people, that's a risk, a step too far. But to be 16, there's an element of risk. I wouldn't say that that's a hugely, there's huge self-confidence that stems from the knowledge that at 16, you don't need to go to maths anymore because you're smart enough to get to where you need to be. And actually, you might be able to learn more through your own study, possibly, many people would consider that's a risk. There's an element of risk in, in, in adopting that approach. But that's, that's evidence of very, making very bold, brave decisions at respectfully a relatively young age. 
Yeah, I, I, I think the, the, the major risk as I perceived it as Peter being 16 years old is sitting there in class and being incredibly bored. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what did you study at university? So at university, I took a degree in, uh, in business. And I was actually enormously confused about what to study. So during high school, I thought I should, I should study math. And then, then I, I went for the. Uh, I, I tried to qualify for the Math Olympics, and I met some of the people who actually, you can say, qualify for the Math Olympics. And I just learned there's an enormous difference between. I think if you take a population of say a thousand people, odds are that uh, that I'm in the top ten. But to qualify for the Math Olympics, and you, you need to be in the top ten amongst the say a hundred million people, and they were just capable of. Solving a problem in say ten minutes, where I could I could just look at it for four hours and I would get nowhere, and and so it's a little bit like you're maybe you're you think that you're really good in chess and then you're playing Magnus Carlsen and 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 you just realize or oh, maybe that's not the the, the career that uh, that you need to go for. That, that was just like you just needed to be at that different level. But I was also very interested in the sciences like physics. I I was interested in engineering. I was interested in, in social sciences. I was thinking about – so in terms of education, what happened was that my, my uncle introduced me to three people, one who had studied political science, one who had studied uh, to become an engineer, and one who had studied business uh, or, or I'm not sure what, what, what the term is called. Um, but And I met all of them and for some reason, the guy who studied business just clearly had – he was the most interesting and had the best life and and uh, and I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go with that. But I think it's difficult as a young person, in, in particular in today's world because you can just choose everything. Yeah. So what do you really want and on what basis do you make that choice? And and it's one of the first choices of consequence that you uh, that you have to make. So I started and, and I would attend the business school, yeah. And, learn about all kinds of business-related topics. But I thought the whole model of education was just fundamentally wrong. In what sense? Uh, in, in the sense that when, when you're at school, they try to teach you topics that may become useful for you one day. Whereas when you're an entrepreneur, you only pick topics that you need to learn because they are useful for you today. So at that point, it was very much education with education being the reason. The reason was not a utility or purpose. The, the reason was merely that you will enter the workforce and you need to be able to prove that you can sit down for many hours and follow a regime and learn and that you can demonstrate your, that, that you are A, able to learn and B, that you are able to uh, to, to fit into a system of performance and performance measurement. And then maybe if you're lucky, when you get out of that system, you're going to use, I don't know, 10 or 20% or 50% even of what, you, what, what they taught you. Right? But I think the problem is that you're, you're, for example, some people would take a class in leadership. And I think there's great value in learning about leadership. But learning about leadership without being able to do it in practice, a little bit like reading a book about dancing without going to the dance floor. Uh, so, so it only takes you so far. And, and, and probably if a person has spent five years reading about dancing, they, they would not make impressive performances. And I thought the, the – I think the exception is, is for example, if, you, if, if, if you're studying to become a, 
chemist or a biologist or a doctor. Like you, you don't want a, jo- a doctor that 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 doesn't <laughs> know how the body works and so on. But but I think for for a lot of education that has to do with the with with business or with or with certain business related activities i think the combination of practice and uh, and and study is infinitely more productive education is a constantly evolving pursuit right it's, it's, it you know, the, the phrase every day is a school day but actually we have this sense of education and then a line in the sand and this is an accusation i would level at you but as a broader observation we kind of we feel like we get to a point at whether it's 16 18 21 whatever the age might be where we finish that kind of formal education the perceived you know because it's in a building where we go to study then that stops but actually education life is an education right every day there is an experience or an opportunity to acquire knowledge new experiences, new learnings. It's its constantly evolving. Yeah, exactly. The way society is created is that you, you attend school until a certain age and then there's this line in the sand and then you go to a company and then you do work. Yeah. And I think the reality is that life is constant learning and you learn best from mixing practical experience with a seek for knowledge to, to master that experience. And I think that many people or many societies tend to chase these over-educated individuals who, who who attend school in a very until a, a rather old age before they get any actual experience from the real world, and then you end up with all these people where, unless you are an enormous corporation with your own academy and so on, and you have the ability to retrain, and they can't really do much. Uh, and and so that's what I what I realized when I was in the system. And so, so, so when I was there, I was I was frustrated with it, and it was only when I started my my first company that I realized what the problem was, which was that disconnect between like learning for learning versus learning for what do you want to achieve. It's interesting. I think I suppose there's you know there's so much political capital, isn't there, in, in developing a nation of people to say that we have we have a certain standard. Of edu- you know a, a qualifiable, quantifiable standard of education that we deliver to our populace. There's a lot of political capital in that, and no government wants to be the one that says we've let those standards slip, or we've changed those standards, or we've we're, we're actually trying to adopt a different way of, of of enabling our people to evolve their learning. You want to be able to say as a as a politician, I guess, well, we stand up and we've got X amount of people achieving this standard, therefore, aren't we doing a good job of educating our people? Exactly, and 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 what I'm trying to express here is, is is not that I have anything at all against education. To the contrary, no. I, I, I believe in lifelong education, yeah. right? But rather that that by having this artificial line in the sand, you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. And that society as a whole and and every education every institution of education, at least in the business related fields, could benefit enormously from embedding more practical real life experience uh, into the education uh, along the way. That's an interesting point. How would you solve that? Solve that problem. That's a that's a big question to answer. But would you would you see perhaps businesses aligning more keenly at an earlier stage in the education process? And what what sort of solutions might might you anticipate could could benefit the school or, or education space, or indeed people learning? I haven't thought about the solution space. I only identified the. The problem, and, and I was, <laughs> it's a big topic, right? We could do a whole, uh, yeah. we could do a whole podcast on this. Yeah. So, 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 my, I, I don't have a sharp recommendation for any politician listening to this, other than, 
find a way. But my recommendation to people who are in the education system is a very strong recommendation to get real-world experience next to your study. So you mentioned your first – I'm fascinated. What was that first business and, and where, did the, where did the idea stem from? Yeah, so, so my first business was this we, – we were selling electronics, I think is the simplest way to describe it. I think, I think and this is – I think this is the route for half of the world's entrepreneurs is eBay, where you we, we, we it was basically me and a friend started to be I remember it like he he had experienced that you could buy a cable connecting the Sony Ericsson phone, that's how old I am, with a computer for you could buy it for probably a euro and a half if you bought them in bulk in uh, in Germany. And then you could sell them for 15 to 20 euros in Denmark uh, when you sold them as individual pieces. And he had sold three cables in, in, in this way and was keen to start a business. And he asked me if I wanted to join in. And at this point, I was really fed up with, uh, with the business school. And so I was like, okay, why not? And so we started just buying cables in Germany in, in bulk. I think we both invested our entire life savings, which were 200 pounds each in, uh, in cables. And then we sold all the cables with a 10x profit. And then we, we, we bought more cables and eventually we ventured into rechargeable batteries and battery chargers and digital scales. And um, the, the, the trouble with it was that, that that price arbitrage ultimately wouldn't last People would the market would become more and more efficient, and so you constantly have to find new products. But it was magical at the time, and it, and it took me to it, it. It was like immediately I just saw this is my thing. Not the cables that wasn't in itself meaningful, but immediately I saw okay, I'm an entrepreneur, and uh, this is meaningful, and now. I really need to learn how to create a, a databases because I need a customer database. I really need to learn how to uh, change things on the website because we have a website now. Uh, I really need to figure out what are the taxation rules for value-added taxation on e-commerce. I really need to figure out uh, what's a good way to uh, hire people. And and so so there was this immediate connection between input and output and and I, and I just thrived in it. So where did the inspiration for Trustpilot stem from? So, so just to fast forward a little bit. So I started this, the, the, so the cable company I started when I was in my early 20s. I've probably been on my second or third year of, uh, of university. I don't right. exactly recall. Uh, so, and I had this wonderful hybris of youth or whatever you call it where, where I uh, – where I just thought, okay, like, so I'm studying. And, and so at this point, I still had this installation from society that it was extremely important to get an education. So it took me a very, very long time, and I will, will get back to that later, to, to drop out of school. But at this point, I was, I was still convinced that I needed to finish my education and uh, even, even with good grades and that I should run the e-commerce company. And then I thought, oh, this starting companies is fun, so why don't I just start a second company also? <laughs> do, do you think that, that that focus around education 
I, I guess if we reflect on your your parents, I think you met, you mentioned your father was a doctor, your mother a nurse. You, in order that you might pursue those professional choices, you you need those qualifications, right, to to practice medicine or to you know to actually participate in that world. So, do you think? I guess you'd had that sort of role modelling that had said edu- finishing education is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, in particular on my dad's side, like either you were a lawyer or you were a doctor. Yeah. Those were the two, uh, you can say, career professions that, that, that people could take. And I, and I definitely grew up in a family where academia was really treasured and education was, was highly, highly valued. And where, where it was just almost unthinkable that you wouldn't need an, an education. So yeah, that was, that was extremely strong in me. And so, yeah, so, so I, had, I had the cable business. At the time, I think we were three or four people. It was me and a friend and, and two, two employees. I was at school. And then on, unlike um, where, where the cable business was really this, this moment where my friend, I can, I can still see him today. He just comes and he has this cable in his hand and, and, and uh, <laughs> the 130 kroner uh, he got from another cable. And, and it was like that was the start of it. At Trustpilot was much less one eureka moment where I was sitting in a bathtub with a rubber duck and or an apple fell down in my head. Uh, it, it was much, much more a long journey where it was more that I picked a problem rather than I came up with a solution. And so I realized that the internet was lacking trust and, and, and the internet economy was really lacking trust. And I partially had that realization from e-commerce experiences going wrong for myself, for people I was close to. I had the realization from my own e-commerce company where we were selling on eBay and on eBay we had tens of thousands of reviews. So everybody was just comfortable buying from us. But the second people ventured onto our website, they were scared because we were just two kids in an apartment selling electronics and they didn't trust us. But I realized, A, that the internet was a very uncertain place. And I thought, isn't there a way to collect all the information about all these companies? And it was so scattered. The way the internet worked back then was that, I mean, most websites, if you looked them up, there was just nothing on them. You could just see the website and you basically had to make a decision on how how professionally looking the website was. It was almost like businesses took their brochures, didn't they? Historically, we had printed brochures that we would leave with a customer. It was kind of like, well, if we just take that brochure and then we publish it digitally, that's that's the principle from a business perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, and if you looked it up online, maybe you could find a three, if it was a big company, you could find a, a newspaper writing about them for three years ago. Or somebody would ask in a forum, like, hey, does anybody have experience uh, buying from uh, the professional hi-fi company dot something? And uh, a user with the name The Mysterious uh, Big Horse would say, oh, they're great. And then another user called maybe Dr. Death or uh, (laughs) something would say, oh, no, they're horrible. And then you, you had to make up your mind on that. And this is, I think, an interesting point for entrepreneurs in general is that my original solution for this was, was, was not in any way what Trustpilot is today. So originally I thought, A, uh, we'll take some search engines and we'll just find all information on the internet about a business. And we will make that available in a toolbar that you can uh, install in your browser. And then w- when you visit a, a, a website that you shouldn't buy from, the, the, the toolbar will say, oh, you should read this information before you buy. Or if it was a great website, the toolbar would say, oh, great website, you should buy from this company. 
And then as an afterthought, I thought, oh, maybe it's also a good idea to have a website where people can share their own experience in case we didn't find something online because that was the case for, for a lot of businesses. And then it turned out that the information we could scrape from other sources were completely unreliable, that nobody could be bothered to install a toolbar. And, and if they could, it would break down the second Internet Explorer. I remember they upgraded from version 6 to version 7, and it just crushed us. Uh, <laughs> the entire toolbar just died. But that the website was incredibly popular. People loved to share their opinion, and it was an environment where we could control the authenticity of the information on it. And, and and that's also why people came back and kept reading the reviews because it was a much more trusted environment than, than whatever else they could find online. And then that's really been the same story through the years. So it's true that I started Trustpilot, but really I like to say that Trustpilot is the sum of, I think, a thousand people's good ideas over uh, more than a decade rather than it is my original uh, genius that has come to life. I guess the lesson there is that you know, so often you, you read or hear of people who'd set out with a very, very clear, very specific goal, but that inevitably business is never a straight line. It's a series of twists and turns and curves and ups and downs. And you're pivoting and adapting and evolving constantly in order to kind of shape and mold your outcome to deliver the right outcomes for your, your stakeholders and your customers. Yeah, there's a saying market beats team beats idea. And, and so what, 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 what do you mean with that when you say that? You mean that the most important thing is that you, you pick the right market or you, that you pick the right problem. The second most important thing is then who are you trying to solve that problem with? And, and only the third most important thing is what, what is your original idea for, for solving this? Be, because that idea will change a thousand times if you have the right team to solve it. But you have to be in love with the problem you're trying to solve. And the problem you're trying to solve has to be meaningful. So where, where I see people fail is that they are too stuck on the idea to solve a certain problem. And that problem that you were at, you set out to to solve, is is it best surmised as one of trust without wishing to, to play on words? But actually that sense, I wonder as to how much as well that proximity, am I right? I think it was about 2007 when you when you first Indeed. Yeah. started Trustpilot. How much of that proximity still to the dot-com bust boom and bust of the late 90s, early noughties, that sense of, we, you know, we were still, e-commerce was still evolving. It was still, we were still getting comfortable with the disruptive nature. All of a sudden we could, we could sit on our, you know, sit on our sofa at home with a laptop and buy stuff. Whereas once upon a time we'd had to have walked down the high street and we might've had a relationship with a brand or we might've had a relationship with a shopkeeper or whoever, whatever it might be. That, that trust was a, a very human, it always has been, a very human experience. How you digitize that trust is a challenge, right? Oh, completely. In, in terms of a hierarchy, the ultimate number one is trust. After that comes the customer experience, which is also extremely universal, but it only works if you trust the content. And I think in the internet economy today, the beautiful thing is, or not the beautiful thing, well, I mean, from Trustpilot's perspective, the, the good thing for Trustpilot is that we, we, we're not running out of problems to solve. Trust online is still a problem. It, it, <laughs> I wish it was different for the world. But that ultimate problem remains the same. The other day, I was, I was, I was pushed this, this ad on, on social media for, for a beautiful pair of shoes. And it just turned out the company behind was completely sketchy, right? 
And so even today, you, you just get all these propositions for all kinds of things that you, you shouldn't really trust. And and I think I think I think when we started it, there was this techno optimism that certainly is not there today. I think I think today I would actually be extremely proud with Trustpilot if we could say we have we have taken a little corner of the internet and created something that you can actually trust. For me, that's extremely meaningful. That would that would be a very very important flagpole to plant uh, in the world. But do you think that part of that? is because trust is is a constantly evolving beast it's very incredibly fluid isn't it we have in in all facets of our life we have we have trust until people until you know we trust people until they let us down or give us cause not to trust them anymore or the same with with brands the, the world is full of i won't mention any names but the world is full of organizations who once upon a time would have been held in the highest of esteem but that for whatever reason have fallen in that esteem or have cause for people not to trust them anymore. So, so it's it's to your point. It's the problem is never solved. It's always evolving. Is that that in itself is a makes for an exciting challenge from a business point of view because it's a it's a it's a fluid beast. It's, it's there's never that line in the sand. Exactly, and the same is true for customer experience. That the bar for what constitutes a good customer experience moves up constantly, and and so as a business. The value of being able to say, you can trust us, we're going to deliver a fantastic customer experience, that's one of the strongest assets any business can have. And as people, I think the world we live in today is, for many of us, is characterized by cognitive overload. Yeah. We're exposed to so much information, so much choice. So for us as people, it's just wonderful when somebody is able to tell you like, hey, you can actually trust this and this is actually going to be good. Oh, thank you. The thing that strikes me is that if you look at those challenges that you face as an entrepreneur in, in getting product off the ground, convincing people that you have a compelling proposition, whether that you know whether that's in which to invest as a in, in a classic sense as an investor, as a stakeholder, as a customer, what sort of challenges did you face in persuading people that this was a commercially viable proposition. This was a business and not a simply, and that's a really simplistic way of putting it, but simply a collection of views for want of a better expression. Yes, that was difficult. So I actually met one of our very, very early investors recently and and he said, oh, I remember when you presented to us and you had all these ideas for how you were going to monetize this. And we didn't believe in any of them, but we believed in you and your ability to come up with, 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 with a way of doing it. Now, I think that initially we were able to persuade a few high-risk-taking investors that we had identified a problem that was, that was a real problem for billions of people. There's basically not a person with an internet connection that's buy, that who, are, who are buying things on the internet or considering to buy from businesses online that could not benefit from using Trustpilot. And, and so we, we, we definitely had success with that, even if at the time there were even doubts like, oh, is e-commerce just a fad? It, like, is, aren't, aren't people just going to buy from the big brands? But the beautiful thing when when you when you are raising money as a as a young business, you actually just need to get one investment. So you you can get a hundred no's, and that's okay if you get one yes. 
And the other thing we were able to convince our investors about was that this, the trust was actually a, a huge problem for businesses. That you had all these companies emerging that people had never heard about, and but that people still preferred to go down to the store, however inconvenient that was, because there, were, there, were, there was a real trust issue. And so we were able to persuade the investors that that just as every virtually every person could benefit from Trustpilot, so 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 vir- virtually there, there's there are very very few companies that exist today that cannot benefit from having a reliable way of showing their c- potential customers that they can be trusted, and 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 then we had traction. We had uh, people like to use Trustpilot. And so it was enough. I mean, by today's standard, we raised ridiculously little money. Like we, we, we. My my first raise was a hundred thousand pounds, and then, or one hundred and seventy thousand. And 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 we had to give up huge chunks of the business to do that. Whereas the kids today, they just rock up. I mean, that that ended now with the finan- with the new financial crisis. But 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 a year ago, you could just more or less like. Uh, Walk into a, a, a VC with a PowerPoint and 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 get a five million dollar check on your way out. <laughs> uh, that was, so that was very very different. Was there a pivotal moment to which you'd attribute your early success? Uh, no, I think I think rather than attributing it to a pivotal moment, I'll, I'll I'll attribute it to an enormous amount of high work over a very 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 long time. I think people underestimate how easy this is. I think that uh, there's this bias that you're only reading about the successes. Yeah. So, so, so you're, you're reading about Instagram. And I remember reading about Instagram, right? And so, so, remember, so they're, they're like, what? They come up with this app and then at some point there are 14 people and they get sold. After two or three years, they get sold for a billion dollars to Facebook. And you're like, oh, my God, like, why am I so dumb <laughs> that at that point we had been going for much longer and, and, and we were uh, just, just, just had far less reach. But the reason you read about it is, is, is because it's so unusual. Yeah. So, so, so I mean, I'm, I'm saying this jokingly, right? Uh, but the odds of you thinking of starting a company – and ending up like after three years, you start an Instagram. They're smaller than the odds of a five-year-old picking up a guitar and becoming Justin Bieber. I remember reading it. I don't know if this was a UK-specific statistic. It was a while ago, but it's, it's in the far reaches of my mind. But something like four out of five businesses never make it past their third year or maybe the fifth year. Yeah. No, but that makes sense because it, it took us um, – I, w- I would pay myself – the equivalent of uh, a little more than a thousand euros in salary after about a year. So I was I was I was going a year without the salary. Then then I would pay myself a, a little more than a thousand euros for definitely, I think one or two more years. And and it took uh, it took us two years before we had any sales, and that's a long time. And and it took us uh, three or four years be- before we had any meaningful traction. And I was I was never in doubt that I was onto something. I was never in doubt that it was going to work out. But that's a long time. So, what do you think are the three most important lessons you learned from those early days? So, from the early days, I learned that 
being close to your customer is extremely important. The, mo- the most valuable thing I did was that the second we got our prototype of a, of a business product that we could sell to businesses, I, I started to just call companies. And God knows, like cold calling is so brutal. It's so brutal. Every day for nine months, I would spend a good six to eight hours of my day just calling businesses that didn't want to speak with me, persuading them that that they should use a product they never knew they needed before they spoke with me. I have to say, like in particular, like if you then add, imagine doing that in in in, uh, in, in foreign countries and so on, like it's, it's brutal. But it really crystallized our thinking about what was important. Before that, we would have endless debates about whether a button should be green or orange or blue. And then... Following that, it would be like, okay, I spoke with, I've now talked with with 10 businesses and they all want to buy if we can do X. And none of them want to buy because of Y. And and so that really, really crystallized. Yeah, so be close to the customers was a big lesson, which in some sense is what Trustpilot enables businesses to do today at scale. And then my other lesson from the early days was just the the importance of uh, of the right people. And it's such a cliche that you hear from all the entrepreneurs, but I can just I can still remember the first time I met our first CFO, and he was a successful former entrepreneur who had built and sold a business, and he just spoke a language that was completely different from any language I spoke, and thought about trading companies in a, in a completely different way, and so the ability for you to to, to, to get the right people. That, that, was, that was, I think, the, the other defining lesson. And, and how was the, the emotional leap, if you like? I think, I think most entrepreneurs with ever, in fact, all entre- entrepreneurs with whom I've engaged over the years have always understood that in order they might scale, intellectually, you, you have to let some other people play with the train set, right? You have to let some other people get around the table. You have to have acquired different skill sets, different capabilities, in order that the business can evolve and grow. But emotionally taking that leap and letting others play with, with the trade set is a real challenge. Is, is that fair? Is that a fair assumption? Is, and, and, and how do you do that? Is it just that, that sense of, well, this could be a very much, we're on to, there's a bigger picture here. There's a, there's a bigger pie here. And, you know, I can't acquire it all on my own. How do, how do you get through that, that challenge? First of all, I want to say people have different ways of becoming successful. You can maintain control but be good at delegating. And you can maintain control but but be good at giving accountability. I was personally actually okay giving up a lot of control. Some people are not. But I think you can become successful in many different ways. If you look at some of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world, they, they, they come across as rather controlling. If you look at a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk, they seem like they have opinions about everything. And they're really enforcing that the iPhone needs to be seven inches long and no longer than that. <laughs> and, and they're into every little detail of it. Uh, then others are not. I, I was very often like, okay, you seemed like you're very good at this, you go. And, and I immediately understood that that, that was what worked for me and, and that was what, what needed to scale. But, but of course, yes, you're seeing a lot of people, partially they never scale because they don't want to give out the ownership of the business. So, so they, they're not taking external money. And I think the problem with that approach is that it worked in a world that exists 
it can still work today, but you run the risk of somebody winning the market before you. Whereas, say, 100 years ago, it was perfectly possible that you came up with a good idea and then for a decade you could tinker with it and get it right and, uh, and so on. Uh, but in today's world, the world moves extremely fast. The likelihood of you being allowed to stay with that idea for a very long time is, um, is, is very limited. So I think you need, you need to, in today's world, the, the chances are that, that, that if you want to build a big business, you, you need to raise money at some point and give, give control. Otherwise, people will just compete you out of business. And in terms of attracting the team, it's also obvious that you win if you hire very, very smart and talented people. And smart and talented people only want to work if they have accountability and responsibility and, and can go do great things of, on, on their, your, their own without asking you for permission. And if you're not okay with that, you're probably only going to take it so far. As the business has scaled... One of the things that always fascinates me is the challenges that that invokes for you as as a founder. You know, if you look at the number of people that Trustpilot employs today, you know, that's a for, for many that's a, a it's an interesting experience. I was going to say uncomfortable. I don't know. I think it's to your point earlier. It's different for different people. But how has the experience been for you going going from I'd imagine a point at which you know everybody. You know their names, their faces, maybe their their relatives, their, whatever it may be. But then you get to a size and scale. Well, that's just no longer possible. That's an that's a really interesting journey. How's that journey been for you? It's been extremely fascinating on the one side, and also extremely challenging. It's been absolutely amazing because I've gotten, I've seen so many stages of what a company looks like. I've I've been with the company when it was just my idea. I've been with the company when we were just ten young people trying to make it work. I've been with the company when we were 100 people and we were growing very, very fast and changing the world, And but we all still knew each other. I've been with the company when we were 500 people raising 70-something million dollar in, in, in venture capital, opening offices in New York and and now I've been with the company now where we're uh, roughly around the 900 people mark where we're listed at the London Stock Exchange. Uh, and, and, and that, again, is, is just a very different reality to live in. And, and partially, I've learned so much from that evolution in, in, in terms of how you build companies. So I feel like whenever I meet an entrepreneur who I, I – I can give really good advice uh, because I know not only what their world is like a year from now, but also what their world is like five years from now. Mm. And then I've also been been blessed by the people I met in that journey where, where you, you meet wonderful, very different people at, at various stages of the business. The people who are successful at a 10-person business are very different from the people who are successful at a 100-person business. And they're again, uh, they again are very different than the people who are successful in a 1,000-people business. And probably when we reach 10,000 people one day, I'll say the same then. So, so, so that, that's been incredible. It's been rewarding also in, in the mindsets I've needed to acquire and the skills I've needed to learn. The way you're successful when, when you are a very, very tiny business is very different from how you're successful uh, in your role as CEO when, when you're a, a much larger company. And I think the challenge there is, is that sometimes you even have to learn things that make you successful 
But then in order to reach the next level, you have to unlearn those things. And and that's really hard. When, so when you learn some things the hard way, you, you fail and you fail and you fail. And then, oh, finally you figure it out. Okay, so this is a really valuable lesson. That lesson is ingrained in your head. Like Then having to, to unlearn that again is actually really difficult. So for example, when you start the company, uh, it's extremely important. I mean, I, I made the point about being close to the um to the customers, I also think it's extremely important that you're very, very close to to the people who are working with you. Partially because when you're such a small group of people, every person really makes an enormous impact. And you don't have a lot of money that you can pay salaries with. And, And so what can you do? You can reward people with impact. You can reward people with having a great culture. And you need to get the most out of every little resource you have. So, so you need to be super close with them, know them intimately. And then it took me a very long time to realize that I, I just couldn't do that anymore. I, I, I was clinging to it when we were 500 people. I still tried to to know everybody's name and who are you and what are they doing. And and, and I, I just – it was so painful for me to 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 let go of that where, where at some point I just had to give up and say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, it's impossible for me to get to know every person in the business. Even even today, it, it still bothers me that I don't, because because that lesson was just so 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 powerful. And also, what's challenging is that it sometimes takes quite a while to to realize why are you not successful in the way, or at least it took me a long time sometimes to figure out why why am I not successful in the way I'm running things. Uh, I w- I would realize. Like I would have, I would have years where everything was just good. We were growing, we were successful, uh, we were making fantastic solutions, and then I could have a full year where even if you looked at the at it from the outside, it would look good internally. I knew like, oh, things aren't working. We're not solving this problem. We're also not solving that problem. This is completely broken. Ugh. Uh, and I would have no idea what uh, what to do about it. I would just be frustrated, and then. Maybe a year later, I would figure out like, okay, okay, this is how we need to run the business now. And mentally going through that, I think is um, when you're in it, it's it's extremely uh, frustrating and and not rewarding. How do you continue to, if you like, sprinkle the secret sauce that you you mentioned culture, the, the things that made you special from the outset, that felt special, that attracted people to that culture to which you refer but that as you grow and you you scale, you need increasingly governance and, and procedures and process controls to enable you to continue to grow and retain that governance structure. How do you how do you ensure that you you don't lose sight of that secret sauce and you continue to sprinkle the magic dust that I'm using all sorts of cliches here, but you sprinkle that magic dust that made the business special from the outset, not only in terms of not not necessarily perhaps from a customer perspective, but particularly from an employee perspective. Yeah. I think that there are there are three components of it. There, there's one component which is purpose, and then there's a component which is culture, and then there's a component we can call operations. How do we run the business? And how we run the business and the culture is they're all somewhat interlinked. But but ultimately, where where we have been very successful at Trustpilot, and I and I think to some extent I can give myself credit for that is that we have always been extremely true to the mission. We always cared a lot about creating something that actually has integrity. 
doesn't mean we always got it right, but we always cared about it. It will always if 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 for example people successfully gamed the system, it would bother us enormously. We have always been willing to forego revenue if it came at the at the price of 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 lower trust. And I think that there is a very lasting value in in having real purpose. Because at the end of the day, business success only makes you so happy. After a while, you you realize the the, the lasting value comes from what, what are you doing and who are you doing it with. So I've always seen my role as being the person that had to make sure that we were true to our promise. Then the second part is culture, where I've always thought that for you to do your best work, you need to be 100% accepted as being you. If you're in an environment where you really cannot be you, you in a relaxed way, it can be hard for you to really unlock yourself. So, and just as it's a value for me as, as, as a human being that, that Lee gets to be Lee uh, in, in, in the most beautiful sense of that. And so, so, so Trustpilot was always this collection of people that could be themselves and, and accepted uh, everybody's quirkiness and weirdness and vulnerabilities and so on. So for both for purpose and for culture, you can, you can really stay true to that going through all, all, all kinds of sizes of the company uh, or, or stages of maturity. We, we, we still care about both of those things today. And then it's more in, in terms of the, the operations. How do, you, how do you run the business that you need to think radically different? As, uh, as the business grows. So what does success mean to you? I think to a great extent, I equate it with succeeding and doing something that is meaningful. To me, ultimately, success in a moment, I've learned, is very, very, it has a very, very short half-life in terms of the happiness it gives you. Like, I've, I've really experienced that. I mean, I mean, in particular, let's say from raising money or from growing revenue. I remember the feeling it gave me when we raised $5 million. I felt extremely successful. It was like, at the time, I had, I mean, I probably had $5,000 on my own bank account and was living in a room that I shared with a bunch of other people, not in a room I shared, an apartment I shared with a bunch of other people. So certainly I wasn't p- poor or anything, but I wasn't like living any glamorous life. So so for me, like $5 million was was an unfathomable uh, amount of money. And the things we could do, and, and it just accelerated the business like 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 a, nothing I've ever seen. Some years after that, we raised uh, $70 million. And that was that was also a lot of money. And, and, and uh, I was looking at... Um, I remember standing on Fifth Avenue and I'm looking at a skyscraper and within that skyscraper, like there's an entire two floors with our offices in it and uh, it also feels pretty good. But but the problem with it is that it doesn't last. It lasts for a week. I remember when we IPO'd, that that feeling of having IPO'd probably also lasted for a week. So, 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 so success in terms of those uh, outcomes yeah, certainly feels good. But ultimately, if I, if, I, if I look at my life, I feel, I feel successful more in the long term in the sense that I created something that is special and, and that I had the opportunity to enjoy all those moments. And I feel 
successful because of my my social life and and all the friends I have and my family and and so if if I die tomorrow I would be I would be happy because of those two things less about certain milestones I unlocked who or what inspires you Peter everything inspires me I, I feel there's so much inspiration in the world and so many different things uh, there is uh inspiration in science there is inspiration i I watched a movie yesterday about two girls who were swimmers in um syria and then they flee to uh, europe and they have even have to swim next to the lifeboat because there are too many people in it and then they come to germany and and one of them ends up competing for the refugee team and and i thought in that story there's just so much inspiration and hope and I in- immediately wanted to do something for uh, refugees everywhere. And I thought, oh, like, what, what can I do there? There's inspiration in watching great entrepreneurs accomplish great things. I feel inspiration is, is just about being open for inspiration. What about influences? Who would you, you, you mentioned at the outset or early in our conversation as to the three uncles, I think it was three uncles, and also the influence of your grandfather and not least many other people along the way. But who do you, who might you consider has been, or who might have been among the bigger, the biggest influences or the bigger influences on you from a career perspective? From a career perspective, it's definitely all the very, very senior people I hired through the years. When I started Trustpilot, I was 20-something years old, and I would hire these people who were in their 40s or 50s, uh, who had very successful careers and who you know, just had so much experience. And I think I think that that walking next to those people and seeing what they did and and and, and debating with them and so on is, is is what has given me the most knowledge, partially about myself, partially about entrepreneurship. Of course, I can be inspired by, like, I'm inspired by Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and Winston Churchill and Martin Luther King. But I'm somewhat also a little skeptical of of idolizing people because, because like, I mean, I meet young entrepreneurs and they want to be me. And I know, like, oh, I'm so flawed and full of, uh, you can say, uh, weird things and, 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 and are completely aware of all the things I'm not good at and have things that scares me and, and can be nervous and have bad breath in the morning and so on. And, and, so, and, and, and so, so, so will they have. But, but on the other hand, that, that's also what I, what I find is beautiful is that when I look at, at a lot of these successful, inspiring people, they are so deeply flawed. If if you look at, yeah, it almost doesn't matter who you name. Like 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 it could, can be a Churchill, can be a, a Jobs, can be a Martin Luther King. Like they, in their personalities, they have such deep flaws. But but I think it's beautiful that they they are creating, they they're changing the world in such amazing ways, despite that. And I think I think that 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 there's hope in that for all of us is is that you you can you, you like you don't need to be perfect you you can have enormous flaws and you can still do great 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 things. It's the imperfections that make us perfect, right? Yeah. <laughs> what about away from work? You mentioned watching a movie, but I, I appreciate that the demands upon your time and the calls on your time as a a CEO of a public company um, are plentiful. 
how do you unwind? Do you unwind? And if so, what might you, what might you pursue? Oh yeah, yeah. You, you, I think you can do the sprints for so long, but but then also I think if if you want to be really successful as a CEO, you need that extra gear. You need that reserve of energy because the most difficult problems come to you, and when there's a crisis, everybody looks to you, and then you cannot be burned out already. Then 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 when something happens, you need to be the one who says like, okay, hey, like you may all be really exhausted and scared, but I have it. I have the energy. Uh, I'm taking us through this. So, so I think it's important to 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 have that reserve. Of course, sometimes you need to spend it, and then you get tired. Uh, so, I love to invite friends over for cooking. Uh, I think I think that's one of the things I love the most is just to have a lot of people over in my house, or and and just um, the friends are just there, and we make food together. Maybe we'll watch a movie together. Maybe we'll play some games together, and 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 we'll maybe. Just sit and laugh together, and, and just just be. I think for me, uh, being surrounded by people I love is is what gives me the most battery charge. Uh, and then on, on top of that, I, I I need a good amount of time to reflect and just make sense of all the impressions that are are thrown towards me by the world every day. Are you a reader? We always like to look for a a, a recommendation, a book recommendation on uh, on astrology. Are you a reader, and if so, what's on the on the nightstand currently? Oh yeah, yeah. I love to I love to read. I really love to read. I find increasingly it's harder and harder for me to find books. I don't know why. It's like it's like I I'm maybe it's it's because I'm you're presented with a billion books, and so which one do you actually go for? And and I feel like I'm I'm suffering for that shortness of attention span or something where where if i don't get immediate uh, satisfaction within like when i was younger I, I was like oh yeah it's a good book you just need to like get past the first 100 pages and then it gets really good and that's not very tiktoky right and so so i actually i dislike myself that i have become this um, instant gratification junkie that 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 finds it harder to get started on 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 the worthwhile books in terms of recommendations, I, I really like – there's a book called Shantaram. Uh, it's, it's, it's recently been uh, turned into a television series that's, of course, only – it's nothing compared to, 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 to what the book is. It never is, I guess. So, so that's just pure literature. Uh, it's about uh, a convict that escapes prison in Australia and, and, and uh, flies to India and then gets mocked and ends up in the slum and then – has to find his way in Bombay and meets love and learns about life and and I, I find it it's a magical story. What excites you about the future? Ooh, my future or the future of the world? Take your pick. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm actually sadly less excited about uh, the future for the world. I, I need to come to terms with all this uh, uncertainty and and it feels like it can be hard. There's so much coming at us and it can be extremely hard to to decipher the, the signal from the noise. And, 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 and you get this sense like, oh, is everything okay or isn't it? And, and uh, do you like the world the way it is now? And, and uh, wasn't it better in the noughties? And, and I think that's, the, that's maybe the first time at least in my life, that that I experience that the world just isn't completely going up and to the right. Do you think that that's something that? So I, I'm struck by 
exactly that experience. So I remember when my, my daughter was born in 2002. So I remember when she was born, I think it was a point at which I'm trying to remember the timelines, but whether, whether my, whether her mum was expecting or whether it was just after she was born, I can't quite remember. But I think at the point at which we were, you know, it was post 9-11, Gulf War 2. It just seemed to be every news channel was awash with war and destruction and just horrible things. I think, I think if I, again, there's something else that struck me, perhaps it was SARS. There was certainly talk of epidemics, pandemics. There were lots of things going on. Ebola. There were lots of just horrific things. And I remember saying to my father, my goodness, dad, what have I done? And what kind of a world am I bringing my daughter into? And he said exactly the same world that I brought you into. He said, if you reflect back on the history, if you look at the history books, there's been wars, epidemics, pandemics, disease, you know, disasters, right the way through history. And there will continue to be them. And I wonder if, and I, I remember at the time thinking, he's absolutely right. If I'm really honest, you know, it, I was born in the very early 70s, not long after, you know, I, and I grew up through the 80s as a kid constantly with the threat of nuclear war being thrown at us. You know, it's always, it was a cold war. It was East versus West. And even the music, you know, two tribes, Frankie goes to Hollywood, you know, it's one for the kids, but, you know, it's always this sense of pending doom. And I wonder if it's always been there, but that we live in such a, you know, to your point about cognitive overload earlier on, that we have, we are now so informed. You know, when I was a kid, I looked back and there was news at six o'clock, nine o'clock or 10 o'clock, and maybe there was morning news, but now we have 24 hour news cycle. So there's constant information being fed to us and good news doesn't sell. So I'm not trying to, to be... I'm not trying to do down the media model, but if you look at good headlines, it strikes me don't make money. Bad headlines certainly do. So I think we, we live in this world where constantly fed information. It constantly feels like it's bad. But actually, my human experience is pretty good. You know, I meet, I meet people facing horrible circumstances oftentimes with incredible hope. So I wonder if, if there's, we've got this kind of conflict of information, you know, the, the inherent belief in the, in, in the greater good and the, the goodness of the human spirit and the human endeavor, and we'll solve them many of it. But, but actually the, inf the information we're fed with is it's all coming, it's constant doom. And it, that's a challenge, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I blame my phone. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I'm saying this jokingly, but but I actually only say it half jokingly. I th I think you're absolutely right. I think I, it's not that I want to belittle all the many things that are going on today that that, that could be a lot better. But if you compare it, say, with the plague uh, in Europe in the 1300s, or if you compare it with, uh, say, World War II, I think the people back then would look at us and just say, ha, -ha. <laughs> you have it pretty easy. And if you look at all the statistics for child mortality or poverty, uh, even if they may, you can say, be a little bit more challenged this year, in the grand scheme of things, they're, 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 the world is just infinitely better than it was 50 years ago. But I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, think, I think the trouble is that we're being exposed to so much that uh, we can't make sense of it. And then I think there's also something about that this digital identity and the digital conversation, there's no anchor in it. And, and so I, I find when, when all your relations and interactions and the consumption of time 
is spent through your phone, yeah, there isn't an anchor to your soul that grounds you in something that is real. I think that you, you really need to be cautious that you yeah, that, that, that you don't forget those anchoring points, like real conversations with real friends that you sit in a real room with, whereas listening to people you don't know who, however interesting it is, have a conversation in, some, in a podcast or in a, in a news channel. Because ultimately, if that is your, your only input, it will give you a, a very dissatisfactory life. I also think to your point around uncertainty, you know, it's, it's a really crass assessment of, of basic human psychology, but we all crave certainty, don't we? There's a comfort in certainty. And yet the reality is all of us face uncertainty every day. Every day we wake up, we believe we have certainty based on our routines and the things that we do through our lives every day. But the reality is there can be you know, any one given moment, there could be a turn, a twist, an opening door, a closing door, whatever it might be. So we are constantly, we're battling with uncertainty all the time. And it's this constant, the, the conflict, if you like, that exists within the human psyche around craving. We crave this certainty, but we have constant uncertainty. It's just, I think to your point, until you get comfortable with that uncertainty, and that's a hard thing to do. Then there is also, there's actually, a, there actually is a comfort that comes with being comfortable with uncertainty. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and at least from a business perspective, uh, we, the people working in companies, have definitely gotten accustomed to a level of certainty that made us forget uh, what the world is really like. And now we are uh, learning that again the hard way. And it's not nice, but uh, in 20 years' time, that's what will make the great stories. So looking back, what advice would you give your 21-year-old self? <laughs> Drop out of school faster. Go all, all, <laughs> go, go, go all in sooner. I ironically uh, spend less time worrying and spend more time being happy. I, 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 f I feel when, when, I, when I started a company, I would spend an inordinate amount of time just, just worrying about things going wrong. And in some sense, that was productive because it was a fantastic drive to fix things and to improve things. But I think from a, uh, a quality of life perspective, I, I, I tend to just worry less. That doesn't mean I don't try to fix things. Yeah, but I, w I, would, I would say just worry less. And finally, where do, I mean, it seems an obvious question to ask really. Well, I always, I always find, finish with the question, where do people go to find out more? But Trustpilot speaks volumes, right? I mean, in terms of, of people that are interested to know more about the business, where should they go? Yeah, they should go to trustpilot.com. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, <laughs> and start to 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 write reviews of all the companies they've had an experience with. Fantastic. Peter, it's been wonderful to speak with you. Uh, I really appreciate your time, your candor and your insight. It's a, it's a fascinating story uh, and it's been a great conversation and I look forward to watching Trustpilot continue to flourish and continue to deliver the kind of information that informs so many of our decisions. It's a, it's a wonderful tool you've built. Uh, you and your colleagues have built, continue to build. Uh, and it's a great, uh, a great resource for so many. So I uh, really appreciate you taking the time out to share some of your experiences with us and uh, wish you all the very best for your continued success. No, thank you. That was very kind of you and I'm honored to be on the pod.
Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.